0: Podcast One Production. So I decided to ICO myself, sort of. I created a coin that represented 15 minutes of my professional attention. I called it a Professional Attention Token or PAT. And I launched the Mark Pesci token as an experiment just to see what might happen and learn from the process. One thing I wrote at the time about my practice as a futurist is that it's my job to kick the future until it breaks. And that's what I sought to do with the Mark Pesci token. Could we turn my labor into a currency? And if we could do it for me, could we do it for everyone? Would that change the way we buy and use labor? Would it make labor more fluid? Would it lead to a utopia of productivity and a true meritocracy? Well, okay, all of that seems a bit utopian. But there were some real practicalities to consider. To work, the token would have to be a cryptocurrency. And to be a store of value, people would have to convert their dollars into tokens. And those tokens would have some value relative to a cryptocurrency like Ethereum. And one Mark Pesci token would be equal to such and such amount of Ethereum. Now, I did all of this work back when Ethereum was about $2,000 a piece. But then as the price of Ethereum started to drop, I realized that it might be possible for someone to buy a token for $100. But by the time they cashed that token in and I could actually receive payment for it, it might only be worth a small fraction of that amount. This is the whole problem we explored in episode six about how difficult it is to transact business in volatile cryptocurrencies. And that's when I first learned about stable coins. So a stable coin, okay, that'll be the solution. And I sat down with a very bright friend of mine, an expert on all things crypto, and I laid out my plans. And when I was done, he shrugged his shoulders and he gave me a bit of advice. He said, Mark, if your design needs a stable coin to work, then your design is wrong. That was a showstopper. And it made me think Am I trying too hard to do this the crypto way? Am I trying to force something that just doesn't fit? Now, this is why I started the project. I started it to learn. So, which is this, I asked myself? Is this science or is this philosophy? <laughs> Mark Pesci. And welcome to the eighth episode of Cryptonomics, a series dedicated to exploring and explaining the way cryptocurrencies and the technology underneath them, the blockchain, will transform our entire world. Along the way, we'll learn what makes it all tick, how people are using this technology to do amazing things, and what it all means for the future of money. Finance, investing, and the economy. We'll speak to folks who have built successful businesses using the blockchain, some of whom have even created their own successful cryptocurrencies. We'll learn how things work, why they work, and when they don't. By the time we're finished, you should understand enough to make your own investment calls. You'll have the tools you need to investigate any cryptocurrency investment. Is it real? Is it wise? Is it a good investment? We can't answer these questions for you, but you'll learn which questions you need to ask and the sorts of answers you'll want to receive. The cryptocurrencies, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The whole field of blockchain, it's just a decade old, and it's already working its way into the core of some very established businesses. And it's being used as the foundation for some entirely new ones. Over the next billion seconds, the entire world of economics, everything that's touched by money, will be changed by this new technology. And that's why we're calling this series Cryptonomics. When you look beyond the ripples produced by the rise and fall in all of these cryptocurrencies, you see another wave. It's a tsunami of change that will roll over banks and stock markets, even nations. Now, there's a lot of hype surrounding cryptocurrencies. Some of that is generated. Some of that is justified. It's a new way of doing business, and it will force businesses everywhere to make way for it. So this is part two of our episode where we're taking a look at the reasons why people believe in cryptocurrencies, often against all reason. Sometimes it's the dream of riches, sometimes it's the fear of missing out. ICOs exploit both of these, plus an oft-expressed idea that a particular ICO will make the world a better place. But that's not the whole of it. Some of these reasons are more philosophical. They come from a particular worldview. But how can you tell? Well, you can start by listening to language. There's a word. It's not a new word. It comes to us from Latin, so it's actually quite an old word. But until a few years ago, I never heard this word used. I hear it all the time now. And I've come to listen for it, because that word, it tells me heaps about the person who's using it. In poker terms, the word is a tell. It's the kind of tick that lets you know whether the player is holding a winning or a losing hand. This word, it tells you all about their philosophy. The word, well, the word is fiat. In Latin, it means let it be done. It features prominently in the book of Genesis, when God commands in proper church Latin, fiat lux, let there be light. In its modern usage, it has nothing to do with light or God. Now it's a way to frame how nations and central banks create currencies by printing them. All nations print money. They've been doing that since the Song Dynasty, well over a thousand years ago. Sometimes it gets out of hand, as it did in Germany in the 1920s, and Zimbabwe in the 1990s, and Venezuela in this decade. And the national currency becomes worthless. But nearly all of the time, central bankers are very careful about printing money, even when they print heaps of money as they did after the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008, which they did to rescue the financial system, when they do it, they do it in such a way that the money effectively disappears down a black hole of bad bank loans. It's a bit of financial wizardry that looks like it should have caused huge problems with inflation, but in most of the world today, the problem isn't too much inflation, it's too little. A bit of inflation is actually good for an economy. It helps keep money in circulation because people want to spend it while it has all of its value. Inflation forces savers to move money out of cash and into investments that grow faster than the inflation rate. So printing money has its uses. There's long been a community of investors who believe money printing is always a bad idea. For many years, they centered their interest on that most monetary of commodities, gold. When national currencies were on the gold standard, they were effectively tethered to the amount of gold held in reserve by that nation. You couldn't print more money without gold to back up those banknotes. Now, in 1970, When the U.S. went off the gold standard and effectively took the rest of the developed world off the gold standard with it, those gold bugs predicted inflation and desolation as a result. And it is true that the U.S. dollar is worth a lot less than it was in 1970. But the economy has grown far beyond that depreciation in the dollar. So these two sides, they argue back and forth. The gold bugs are the minority view, and until a few years back, they were classed as the nearest thing to economic crazies. And that word fiat, for fiat currency, a currency created simply because a national or central bank wishes it into being, that word comes from those gold bugs. It's a way of framing a national currency as inherently illegitimate, because it's backed by a wish and not by gold. And then Bitcoin happened. Pretty much everything gold bugs love about gold, people also love about Bitcoin, with the exception that Bitcoins are utterly immaterial. Yes, still have to believe in them. But people do, just as people believe gold has intrinsic value beyond its utility in jewelry and electronics. The earliest fans of cryptocurrencies, and Bitcoin in particular, were quite often the folks who really appreciated the scarcity by design of Bitcoin. The fact that there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. No bank or government can print another Bitcoin ever. Nothing in Bitcoin happens by fiat. So the cryptocurrency fans tend to divide currencies into two camps, crypto and fiat. Two philosophies, two tribes. It's a very polar way of seeing the world. One side sees cryptocurrency as inherently legitimate and national currencies as inherently illegitimate. And when you start seeing national currencies as illegitimate, it's not a terribly big step to start seeing those nations as illegitimate. This is something friend and fellow futurist Rob Tursic discovered on a junket to Puerto Rico at the start of 2018.
1: There was this, uh, you know, uh, Puerto Rico uh, Cointopia event that happened and there were five or six huge events and, uh, and dozens of smaller events all involving cryptocurrency and, and digital currency speculation. So I'm interested in the category so I decided to head down there and check it out. And um, to my astonishment, the content of these conferences is actually quite poor. It's not what you expect. You think you're going to get you know, kind of a, a seminar in how to maybe launch a coin offering or, or maybe best practices, or perhaps they're about investing and trading these things. That's not what it is. It's like a rally. It's like a political rally. And the event that I went to, one of the opening speakers was a guy named Max Kaiser, who has a show on RT, which is Russia Today, which is an arm of Pravda. It's basically a propaganda organ for the Russian government. This guy began with an anti-government jihad, just a rant, foaming at the mouth about the treasury and the, and the government policies, monetary policies, and how f- central banks are manipulating currency and so forth. A lot of stuff we've all heard before, but we typically hear that on kooky right-wing blogs. It's kind of surprising to be at an investor conference where companies are seeking to raise tens of millions of dollars in, up- in public offerings. It's kind of crazy to hear this kind of ranting happening on stage as the opening speech. It's almost like that's the kind of the official policy of this group. Tear down the government, tear down the system, tear down the organization. And it caused me to wonder about who really benefits from cryptocurrency. You know, one of the aspects of cryptocurrency that's currently being studied very carefully by regulatory bodies is money laundering. And there's no question that money laundering is a mechanism to influence political outcomes all over the world. So one area I think that one might want to investigate a little more closely before you dive into this cryptocurrency space is the regulatory body investigation into who's pushing this political agenda, this very overt and somewhat insane political agenda.
0: Rob's not making this up. Here's an excerpt from Max Keyser's anti-government jihad.
2: But with Bitcoin and with crypto, we have a technology that is, I think, equal to the task of pushing back against this entrenched oligopoly of very bad actors called central banks, commercial banks, Wall Street, uh, who have prayed, uh, have been rent seekers, who have been nickel and diming us to death. How did Jamie Dimon become a billionaire? By nickel and diming people to death. How did Lloyd Blankfein become a billionaire? A nickel at a time. Fees, more fees, extra fees, more fees. They add nothing to the economy. Warren Buffett adds nothing to the economy. He's not a guy building stuff. He's a guy who gets money for nothing from the Fed, buys huge positions in corporations, streamlines them, private equifies them. But is he adding anything to the economy? No. He's a negative to the economy. Private equity is a negative to the economy. Look at Toys R Us. Toys R Us is going under after Mitt Romney and his private equity group extracted $200 billion through a leveraged buyout put in their trousers and 30,000 jobs are going to be lost. That's financial terrorism. That's not economy. That's not an economy. That's not sustainable. Now it's a battle. It's a war. We fight this war in the freedom of the press front every day. People accusing us of um, putting forth issues from a f- entity, a foreign entity Uh, without actually listening to us, reading us, and appreciating that we're in the truth business, and they attack us. Now they're coming for us on the financial front, and we have a censorship-resistant currency. We have individual sovereignty. We have our private keys. You cannot have our private keys.
0: It's difficult to unpick all of this, precisely because there's so much bound up in this hairball of Paranoia and economic uncertainty and rage and envy and who knows what level of disinformation. It's easy to make people angry, almost too easy these days. People want villains and central bankers make very convenient ones governments make very convenient ones. Now, that's not to say they're perfect. Nothing in this world is perfect, nor should we expect perfection. But actual malevolence? Let me take a page out of the scientists' books. Extraordinary claims, they say, require extraordinary evidence. And that, there just isn't. But there's a lot of belief wrapped up in philosophy in this corner of the crypto community. And that's what I hear loud and clear when someone uses the word fiat. It's their way of telling others that they're in the in crowd, that they see all of this global economic structure as inevitably headed toward collapse and just as inevitably that we're headed toward a golden age of cryptocurrencies. Their philosophy points to the imminent coming of an age of individual maximalism where true virtue and capability are rewarded, where achievement equals merit, where everyone works and no one slacks. It's alluring, and it's also utterly impossible. We can make a meal out of the capabilities and rights of the individuals, but—and this is where I put my marker down as both a futurist and as an ethnographer, someone who studies cultures—individuals are both reflections and embodiments of their societies— So, there's a real tension between the philosophical conception of a cryptopia, where individual rights and individual freedoms are both reinforced and amplified by blockchain cryptocurrencies, and the need to maintain a coherent and stable body politic. Unless, perhaps, what if we could use these same tools to help improve our societies? What if just as they help individuals be better individuals? What if blockchains and cryptocurrencies could help us be better together? When we come back from the break, we'll talk to someone working hard to bring that world into being. Welcome back to Cryptonomics, where we're looking at the two philosophies governing the world of cryptocurrencies. One philosophy where it's all about helping yourself, where it's right to do so. And another philosophy where it's all about helping others, where it's right to do that. Now, it's not that these worlds are mutually exclusive. They aren't. But partisans in both camps distrust the philosophies of the other. Each feels unsure of themselves in the presence of the other. I mean, if you're a committed individualist, what is it that you fear more than anything else? You fear loss of agency, loss of power, loss of control. And you can see those qualities in folks who disagree with you on this basic philosophical point. But what about the reverse? What if the power you're protecting actually emerges from collective action? We say that Bitcoin is built on mutual distrust. That's true up to a point. But the parties still have to want to trade. There is a social contract even on a blockchain. That social contract, although it's trustless and transparent and accountable, that can be used for the basis of a new way of accounting value. A way that doesn't necessarily prioritize money or profit or the individual, but still needs to keep the books open and balanced. We aren't really used to thinking in those terms because, well, that's that's not how capitalism functions. It's organized around prioritizing profit to individuals. But there's no fundamental reason why that should be the case. It's just that in reality, we've made that philosophical choice. There are different ways to organize blockchains and currencies toward social ends. There's a lot of work going on in these sorts of social applications for blockchains, Although they're not generally as flashy and as well-financed as most ICOs, they're often far more significant. Almost anything is possible. The possible project out of the Netherlands is proof of that. It's a time bank where people can donate their time towards social good and that time can be accounted The possible project makes it easy for people to donate their time in a way that can be publicly accounted for and audited and valued, even if that value is only in social terms. And it uses a blockchain because that's the best technology we've got to provide those kinds of features, creating a ledger of good. Then there's sharing which puts the blockchain to work so people can share goods and services throughout a community. Almost anything that you can share, from tools to piano lessons, you can share on sharing. Sharing empowers communities to make the most of their material capacities. And finally, Level 1. Level 1 is a project that's backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation It's creating a new blockchain-based system for mobile money throughout the developing world. Level 1 is aimed squarely at the billions of unbanked and underbanked who won't earn enough to be interesting to bankers, but who still need modern financial services. Now, all of these projects are experiments that use the blockchain to rewrite or amplify bits of the social contract that already exists between us. We want to share our time. We want to share our goods. We want to do that where we can do it fairly and safely. We want to provide equity and opportunity to people everywhere. We need to keep that front of mind when we hear the shrieking fury of cryptopians, true believers united in the philosophy that cryptocurrencies and blockchains are the answer to everything. So perhaps it's best to balance Max Keiser with another voice, a calmer one. Michelle Bowens is the founder and executive director of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, where he's dedicated himself to helping people find ways to connect, share, learn, and empower themselves. He sees blockchain as a very big deal for social equity and as a way to reimagine how we use accounting.
3: We have a Facebook group with 25,000 people on it, digital nomads. Hundreds of people, even thousands, are already living in the token economy we have four crypto meetings a week. And you look at the blockchain, which initially I didn't like very much because it's, uh, you know, this anarcho-capitalist philosophy. Uh, But what I I saw what they're doing is instead of begging for money with venture capital and banks, you create a white paper, you crowdfund, you tokenize, and you keep 40% for labor. That's amazing. And you create an ecosystem that's not... Really equal, but actually is designed to avoid power concentration in single companies. And I find that a first step towards ecosystemic economies. And here's what I'm working on uh, this summer. So we need open and shared supply chains, we need circular economies. But if I cannot see what you're doing, I, we can't be circular. So we need to open this up, open up the supply chains.
0: So transparent.
3: Yes. And then we need three new kinds of accounting because every change of civilization has been a change in accounting. Mm,
0: we've actually talked about that on Cryptonomics. Right. So you're absolutely Very, right.
3: Yeah. The, 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 the Sumer, the first, uh, writing is a ledger. Yeah. That's, that's the state, formation of the state. Double entry accounting yep. the, is capitalism. We have actually three forms of accounting emerging right now. One is opening contributive accounting. A community saying amongst each other, What are we going to consider value, not the market? And, you know, creating an accounting system that recognizes contributions. You plug that in in the open open supply chain. That's what's happening with the blockchain. Anybody can permissionlessly contribute to the software. Mm -hmm. Don't have to ask permission. Second, REA accounting, resources, events, actions. Double entry looks at the world from the accumulation of capital of a selfish entity REA accounting is flow accounting. So what's happening, what, what is flowing in our ecosystem? And the third one is biocapacity accountability. It's how much copper, how much copper can we use in our context, context-based sustainability? without destroying the planet, without destroying planetary boundaries.
0: And that's clearly going to be negotiated with everyone else who's trying to use gold or copper or lead or any other resource that's uh, limited.
3: So there's a project called Reporting 3.0 that talks about global thresholds and allocations and has created a Global Thresholds and Allocations Council as a prototype. And, you know, we know how much copper there is and we can update it when we find, you know, new, new copper. We, we know the biocircularity of these resources, you know, how much we can reuse after an iteration. Mm. Uh, and that gives you broadly what's available for the planet. Then, of course, politics come in. What's what's a fair distribution of this? Uh, and that's, of course, that's the difficult part. But it's already really interesting that it can be done. Uh, and I want to add something, so one more. This is, okay, this is key capitalism cannot fund generative activity it funds extractive activity Mm -hmm. you you take value from people and resources but here's the thing so region network regenerative network it's a blockchain project has conceived something called the ecological state protocol so you have a state of an ecology and let's say you want to decarbonize you have an open system in which everybody can say I want or have decarbonized you verify it, you put it on a ledger, and you tokenize it. That's the easy part, by the way. But the next next step is having a recognition of positive social and ecological externalities. So if you can convince the water company that it's gaining hundreds of millions of euros because organic farmers are not polluting the land, then they can buy up a percentage of what they're saving to finance the tokens. And Um, then we have a generative virtuous loop that can fund a transition, which is what IBM does with Linux. So it's not utopian, it can be done. The Regen Network, now that's a big project.
0: They make a claim in their white paper because yes, of course there's a white paper. We propose a remedy to ecological degradation and climate change.
2: This approach leverages distributed ledger technology to create a systematic multi-stakeholder market-driven solution to facilitate verifiable ecological outcomes. We outline the key technological challenges to creating a decentralised system to monitor and verify ecological state and change of state, and the computational needs, frameworks and governance that can create a trusted infrastructure for an ecological accounting ledger capable of rewarding ecological regeneration through smart
0: contracts. That's a tall order. Using blockchain-based accounting to radically revision not how finance works, but our relationship to nature and the entire world. That's the kind of high-flown language that ICOs use to sell themselves to the public. But what if it works? What if it hits the mark? What if this philosophy embedded in a blockchain becomes reality? Perhaps the finance people are thinking too small. They see blockchain as a revolution in finance. But looking at the Regen network, you can see that some folks see far more than finance in the blockchain. They see a whole new world. Now, back to my experiment with the Mark Pesci token. My feeling experiment. The further in I got, the more I realized that liquidity and labor isn't an end to itself. It's a means to an end. It's not a philosophy. But in creating a solution to a problem, I did learn a lot more about the problem. I learned that it would be great to have some sort of combo scheduling and payment tool that would allow people to book time with me. And that tool doesn't really exist. You can hack one together out of a few pieces, but there's nothing off the shelf to do it. Because what I really need is come to this website, buy a slice of my time for such and such a price on such and such a date, that's it. Anything else, well... The value is just not really there. It's too complicated. It's a poor fit. And so while it might be pure philosophically to use a cryptocurrency, it's always important to remember that the perfect is the enemy of the good. This is not a perfect world. Our solutions are never perfect. And while we may strive for philosophical perfection, we won't achieve it. And we need to allow for more in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies. We need to allow ourselves to work both together and for ourselves. It's a muddle. It's always been a muddle. But that's okay. We have great tools. We're learning how to use them. We'll muddle on through. In our next episode of Cryptonomics, we go one-on-one with Joe Lubin, the driving force behind Ethereum and the emerging world of smart contracts. As the founder and CEO of Consensus, Joe is set up to be the Bill Gates of this century. I'll sit down with Joe for a live interview in which we'll cover his career, his ambitions, and his belief that smart contracts can foster a better world. That's the next time on Cryptonomics. If you want to learn more about the topics we've explored in this episode, or perhaps watch the full video of Max Keyser's talk in Puerto Rico, or visit the Peer to Peer Foundation website, or find out more about the possible project sharing or level one, cruise on over to our website at cryptonomics.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's cryptonomics.show. The Next Billion Seconds Cryptonomics was written and presented by Mark Pesce, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolich. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesce thanking you for listening.